from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. On this episode of Newt's World, many remember Justice Antonin Scalia for his commitment to the Constitution, his razor-sharp wit, and his unlikely friendship with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But little has been written about his pre-Supreme Court years. Award-winning reporter James Rosen reveals never-before-reported information in the definitive, masterful biography, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936-1986, a comprehensive and detailed account of Scalia's monumental accomplishments in the 50 years preceding his appointment to the Supreme Court in 1986. Here to talk about his new book, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest and old friend, James Rosen. He is the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, a veteran Washington correspondent and best-selling historian. He reported for Fox News for nearly two decades. James, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Mr. Speaker, it's great to be with you. I will abandon the honorific hereafter in deference to the title of the show. That's what an originalist would do, it seems to me, so hereafter I'll address you as Newt, if that's okay. That's great. I appreciate that. You got it exactly right. You know, you previously wrote two interesting books, The Strong Man, John Mitchell, and The Secrets of Watergate, and Cheney One-on-One, A Candid Conversation with America's Most Controversial Statesman. Build on those two, why did you decide to write a book on Justice Scalia? So I knew Justice Scalia a little bit. One of the first things I did when I 
arrived in Washington to become a Washington correspondent in early 1999 was right to Justice Scalia to seek an interview. This was because I'd been fascinated with him since high school in the 80s when I saw him participate in those old PBS television programs, The Constitution, That Delicate Balance, where a moderator like Fred Friendly, formerly the president of CBS News, would convene this group of eminent minds in a kind of theater in the round setting. For all I know, Newt, you did this show. <laughs> and you would have someone like Dan Rather sitting next to Sandra Day O'Connor, next to Gerald Ford, next to Antonin Scalia, and they would debate hypothetical situations. And it just struck me immediately that Scalia was unlike any other performer or participant in these fora. And writing to him for an interview in 1999 commenced a kind of very amusing and unusual two-year correspondence between us, which will be covered in the second volume, which will cover the Justice's Supreme Court years, as well as a pair of lunches at his beloved A.V. Ristorante Italiano, now defunct, his favorite Italian restaurant, which he had been going to since the 1950s over on New York Avenue in what was then a kind of a sketchy neighborhood. And it was just the two of us, and we drank wine, and at one point, he urged me to eat vegetables off of his plate. I said, Mr. Justice, I could. He's come on, come on, come on. So there I was shoveling vegetables off of Justice Scalia's plate. He drove me back to my office in his car. I've subsequently had occasion to confirm with a number of friends and clerks that that's a scary experience for everyone, not just for me. And so I was convinced after those early experiences a quarter century ago when he was very generous to a young reporter that someday I would write about him. What I found, Newt, was that the two existing biographies of Justice Scalia, both of which were published during his lifetime, one of which he cooperated with extensively, the other not at all, both came out pretty much the same way, fairly open in their contempt for the justices' jurisprudence, legacy, conduct. And so this book that came out this week, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986, covers the first 50 years of Justice Scalia's life, his Catholic upbringing, his Jesuit education, the influence of his immigrant father and his mother, both teachers, his mother also the child of Italian immigrants, and his very consequential work in the Nixon and Ford administrations, which I hope we can get into, and his posts in academia, all of this before becoming a judge, and then, of course, being elevated to the Supreme Court. I found that the previous biographies treated just about every episode of Scalia's pre-Supreme Court life, either cursorily or in the most tendentious light. So this is the first biography of Antonin Scalia published since his death. It is the first to make use of a vast wealth of documentary and personal sources, either overlooked by or unavailable to the previous biographers. And it is the first admiring biography of Antonin Scalia. And therefore, I think it is the first accurate biography of Antonin Scalia. And it's the book that Scalia fans have been waiting for and all students who are interested in an accurate history of American law and society during his time. I was very much a fan of Scalia and thought that it was remarkable the impact he had intellectually. He was likable, he was friendly, he was fun. And I'm curious to what extent you found yourself drawn to him in part just as a person. That's precisely it. From when I saw him on television on PBS in the 1980s, he was so unlike the other participants in these televised dialogues. He was at once more casual and more determined to prevail in the substance at hand. He was given to a greater, wider range of expression, all kinds of rhetorical devices at his command, including sarcasm that the others didn't typically employ, and his central legacy, which was the way he profoundly shaped the way that the law is debated, argued, ruled upon, and even written. And this is what makes Scalia not just one of the most important justices of the last hundred years, but really one of the most important American intellectuals of the past hundred years. 
to explain for the benefit of our audience, and I should point out that Scalia, Rise to Greatness, is written for non-lawyers. Let's try to bring a kind of novelistic sensibility to it so that even as we delve deeply into legal issues on which Scalia made his mark, they're readily understandable by the public, which was a hallmark of his own career and why he was so successful. He insisted that his opinions should be readable by ordinary individuals who are not even lawyers, and they crackled with wit and life, as you say. The revolution that Scalia launched, in essence, was that until he came along on the federal bench, there prevailed in legal circles a notion that was primarily espoused by liberals called the living constitution. The idea that the constitution should be a living, expanding, breathing, live organism of sorts that could expand as necessary to accommodate the modern phenomena that the founding fathers could never have envisioned, such as nuclear weapons or the internet. And that in order to achieve that objective of expanding the meaning of the constitution beyond what it meant at the time it was adopted, liberal judges would look to things beyond the text of the law, such as the legislative intent, the legislative history behind a given provision in the Constitution or a statute, so that when they were interpreting these provisions and statutes, which is the central business of any judge to tell us what the law means, they would look beyond the text to what was said in floor debates on the House and Senate floor, or what was said in a committee report as a given law snaked its way through the process. Scalia stood athwart all of that. When he arrived on the federal bench, he effectively declared, that such practice amounted to an imperial judiciary, seizing power from the people and their elected representatives and the president who would sign those measures into law. And he championed a different way for judges to do their central business of telling us what laws mean. He said that the laws mean what they were widely understood to mean at the time that they were enacted, and that that should never change, which is to say that the Constitution should not be expanded in its meaning to accommodate for new phenomena. If you want to accommodate new phenomena, pass new laws. The Constitution should be held, as should any statute, to its original meaning, what it was widely understood to mean at the time. And how could that best be discerned? Not through resort to legislative history and other things, floor debates that the lawmakers never actually voted on. They voted on the text of a law, and the Constitution was adopted as a specific text. So the best tool to use to find the original meaning, the metal detector to find it, if you will, is textualism. When Scalia started, all of this was revolutionary and thoroughly resisted in some quarters. By the time he died, no less a figure than Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, herself a liberal, with whom Scalia, like with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, enjoyed a close friendship, no less a figure had declared, we are all originalists now. Scalia managed this not through being on the winning side of a whole lot of Supreme Court cases, but in the crackling brilliance of his dissents and playing to a subsequent generation. And so that is his revolution. It touches because it touches the way Lawyers argue before the Supreme Court the way Supreme Court justices write, the way even lawmakers now frame bills and frame those texts. It reaches into every corner of American life. And so that's why Scalia is such a profoundly important American over the last hundred years. I found myself on occasion reading his dissents, and I thought that the dynamic, the excitement, the vividness of his arguments, his use of English, in many ways he was stunning when he would dissent. And you'd read it and think, how could the rest of the court not get this? <laughs> and I think that from day one, you know, he was interested in creating an intellectual revolution by just calmly and methodically saying what he truly believed in a way that was very systematic and yet very literary and very artful. Absolutely true. And, you know, to give one example for the benefit of our listeners, as a court of appeals judge for the District of Columbia Circuit which is one rung below the Supreme Court and often described as the second most powerful court in America. 
Scalia served on that court for four years before President Reagan elevated him to the Supreme Court in 1986. And it was a real murderer's row of legal talent who served on that Court of Appeals at that time. Not only did you have Antonin Scalia, but someone who predated him on the court for two years, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Robert Bork, Kenneth Starr, and Larry Silberman. And during that time when he was a Court of Appeals judge is when Scalia really first started to lay down these markers, sometimes in majority opinion, sometimes in dissents on the Court of Appeals, on behalf of original meaning and textualism. And just also, as you say, a voice of common sense often. One case in which he dissented, but in which he was ultimately vindicated by the Supreme Court, was where a group of condemned death row prisoners scheduled for execution sued because they claimed that the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, under a relevant 1976 statute, had failed to ensure the safety of the drug that was going to be used in their lethal injection. (laughs) And believe it or not, in the liberal atmosphere of that particular court at that time, this claim was upheld. The idea that the FDA should undertake to ensure the safety, and had failed to do so, of drugs being administered for lethal injection by other state and federal agencies. And Scalia famously wrote that the idea that condemned death row inmates are in the same standing as, let's say, people who are purchasing everyday objects that are like lipstick or over-the-counter drugs that are regulated by the FDA was preposterous. And he said, The recipient of the lethal injection is no more the consumer of that drug than the prisoner executed by firing squad can be said to be the consumer of the bullets. That's wild. This first volume really takes us up through how he grew up and what he's doing. Part of what shaped him, and that is his effort to go to Princeton and his sense of what had happened that blocked him from going to Princeton. It's interesting. Scalia was a brilliant student from the beginning. He was a devout Catholic from the beginning, and his Catholic faith, which I think is explored in this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, more than it is anywhere else in the printed literature on Antonin Scalia, really fueled his rise. And he was the valedictorian. He got almost straight A's, 40 out of 45 straight A's in grade school. He was the valedictorian in his high school, which was a Jesuit-run military academy, a rare hybrid called Xavier High School in Manhattan. And he was valedictorian at Georgetown University also a Jesuit institution, when he graduated from there. His first choice for college had been Princeton. And as valedictorian, as somebody who was a participant and excellent at a variety of extracurricular pursuits, there was just really no way that any college or university could turn down a student like Antonin Scalia. And yet Princeton did. And he later said, the justice, that he felt that amongst the Princeton alumni who interviewed him for candidacy for admission to the school, he could sense some kind of anti-Italian prejudice. As he put it, that they felt that he wasn't the Princeton sort. One of the documents this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, makes use of that's never appeared anywhere else is a secret oral history of his life that Justice Scalia conducted in his Supreme Court chambers in 1992, and which was only recently unsealed. And he describes this moment with Princeton, and when he told his interviewer that he got the sense that the Princeton alumni had deemed him not the Princeton sort, and he was asked what that meant specifically, he said, not waspy enough not country club enough, in essence. And it was one of the rare moments where Antonin Scalia confessed to feeling any kind of ethnic prejudice against him being an Italian-American. The fact is, he, of course, had no use for identity politics, nor its legal spawn, and he was never going to portray himself as a victim of any kind. But the truth is, and my research shows, and we show this in the book, that he was subject to 
more frequent prejudice on the basis of his ethnic heritage than he has ever cared to discuss or acknowledge, including instances previously unreported where he was insulted directly to his face on that basis. And even eminent reporters of the time like David Broder made comments in print that would be considered offensive today. He experienced rejection at different points in his life. In the early part of the Reagan administration, he was passed over three times in seven months for the kinds of positions he was seeking. He persevered, but as a fellow fan of music, as I know you to be, Newt, that gave me the opportunity for that relevant chapter in Scalia Rise to Greatness to quote Tom Petty, the waiting is the hardest part. <laughs> well, but when you talk about waiting, he graduates from Georgetown. He then goes to Harvard. And he graduates from Harvard Law, and he gets some – I did not know this existed until I was looking at your book, and he gets a very unusual fellowship. Describe the Sheldon Fellowship and what it meant. So unlike most of his contemporaries in the top five of Harvard Law School where he graduated, magna cum laude, or the broad swath of graduating colleagues of his at Harvard Law, Scalia did not take a clerkship. He did not immediately head for some white shoe law firm and take a very lucrative position. He accepted what was called the Sheldon Fellowship, which essentially allowed him to travel through Europe for a better part of a year, all expenses paid, with nothing expected from him in terms of producing any kind of academic output whatsoever, as long as he didn't stay in any one particular country beyond a certain length of time and traveled widely and sent the dean of Harvard periodic postcards saying, wish you were here. That was really the only requirements for it. And it was, of course, because of his sterling academic record. It wound up that around that time, he met the woman who had become his wife and the mother of his nine children, the incredible Maureen McCarthy Scalia, through a blind date that they were set up on when he was at Harvard Law and Maureen was at Radcliffe. And he wound up asking her to marry him in a scene that Mrs. Scalia described directly for me. And which has also never appeared anywhere else, his actual proposal to Maureen. And then they went on the Sheldon Fellowship together as a kind of extended honeymoon. Thereafter, he took a position with Jones Day, based in Cleveland, and began his extraordinary rise to greatness. That's really amazing. It's almost like the old grand tour that wealthy aristocrats used to take to just sort of broaden themselves. Part of their experience included traveling behind the Iron Curtain at the time into what was considered the countries that made up the Soviet Union. So it broadened him. It acquainted him with other systems of law. He did give serious thought to learning German law and becoming licensed in the practice of German law. But I guess cooler heads, which is to say Maureen's, prevail. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. 
So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. He ends up working with a very top-notch firm, but one which is really based in Cleveland. What do you think attracted him to Jones Day? He understood, and one of his sons has attested to this, that were he to have taken a more traditional first year out of law school job, let's say at a powerhouse firm in Manhattan, that he really wouldn't have time to raise a family. Scalia was an only child, and amongst his parents and their brothers and sisters, we're looking at nine families, the only one of which was Scalia's parents to produce a child. So his Birth itself was something of a miracle, and his onlyness certainly contributed to the way he later behaved on the Supreme Court. He wanted, I think, to have a large family. His aunt, who was very close to him and helped raise him, once said that he always wanted a baseball team. And of course, the Scalia's had nine children. And so I think his choice of Jones Day and a Midwestern locale for his first years practicing law were deliberate and was designed to give him more time to raise a family. I always had the sense that his family was as important as his career that he took great joy in his family. He did, but this is explored extensively, and for the first time, I think, in this depth and intimacy in Scalia Rise to Greatness, was the sort of division of labor in the Scalia household between him and Maureen. He was never shy about saying that she raised all nine children with not a lot of assistance from me. And he used to joke, there's not a dullard in the bunch. And when people would pursue with him what it meant exactly, very little assistance from me, he made it clear that he was home for dinner every night, regardless of what job he held at the time, including as a Supreme Court justice, so that his kids knew that he was a presence in their lives. I interviewed four of the Scalia's children, including Father Paul Scalia, and they told me he was by no means a non-person at home, but it was really their mom, Maureen Scalia, who was more intimately involved in the children's lives in terms of knowing who their teachers were, making sure they were associating with the right kinds of kids, their clothes, their extracurricular activities. And we explore in Scalia Rise to Greatness what this meant for Maureen Scalia. So, for example, in 1976, when Scalia was serving as Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice, which was the very same job that William Rehnquist had held when he was nominated to the Supreme Court, this was a position in which you are the president's lawyer's lawyer. You are issuing written legal opinions for anyone in the executive branch who seeks it about the lawfulness or unlawfulness of any administration initiative that you might want to try, either as a policy or a piece of legislation or what have you. So he was a tremendously important official in the Ford administration at that time, and his schedule started to reflect greater absences from home. 
In the year 1976, he traveled to several ABA conventions that were overseas, a couple of trips to Italy, Germany, UK, sometimes with absences from home that lasted six or eight days. And this was at a time when the Scalia's only had eight of their nine children, but who ranged in age from under 12 months to teenage years. So as I say in the book, these were the hardest days for Maureen Scalia, raising all those children with her husband flying abroad for the purposes of his career. The sacrifices she made are extraordinary. The success of her efforts is extraordinary. And as Gene Scalia, the president's oldest son, prominent attorney in his own right and former Trump cabinet official told me, you're writing a book about my dad. I can name a number of important Supreme Court justices, but I don't think I can name for you anyone else who accomplished what my mom did. And as one of Justice Scalia's daughters noted after his death, my mom was equally as smart and dare I say it smarter than my dad. It wasn't to Justice Scalia that the kids went for help with their math homework. That's a great story and a real insight into how the family operated. Back in this period, walk us through the complexity where Scalia gets nominated by Nixon. Nixon then has to resign. And there's a certain trickiness to how Ford does what he needs to do to keep Scalia. Technically, Ford had not nominated Scalia. And I will confess, I don't fully understand all of it because I'm not a lawyer. I don't understand exactly the dance they were doing at this point. His first job in government was in the Nixon administration. He was tapped at the age of 35 to serve as general counsel to a newly created agency created by the Nixon administration called the White House Office of Telecommunications Policy. And it was an early effort led by a visionary of the time, someone who deserves his own biography, Clay Tom Whitehead. Tom Whitehead was someone who held several degrees from places like MIT and who worked at the Rand Corporation, was a genius and an honest-to-God visionary who gave Scalia his first job in government, I was around the same age as him, and who saw the need for the federal government to start to undertake to control with greater precision and outcome and greater effect the sprawling business of telecommunications policy across the different branches and the different agencies and so on, and to consolidate all of that under administrative control and thus was born the White House Office of Telecommunications Policy. I'm the first researcher to get a hold of Antonin Scalia's papers from when he was the general counsel to that agency. And they include his handwritten notes, his memos, his drafts, his correspondence, sometimes with famous figures of the era like Chuck Colson. And Scalia predicted the rise of the internet. He talked about how there would be remote users using their TV screens to do their banking and other remote things, retrieve information. He predicted the attendant privacy concerns that would ensue as a result of this development. He and his colleagues used terms that wouldn't escape the lips of ordinary Americans for another 25 years, like shared computer system. There's an extraordinary document published here for the first time where Scalia, as general counsel to this White House Office of Telecommunications Policy, is presiding over a mission to achieve interoperability between two different Pentagon information systems. And at the precise moment where the two auto din and this other ancient relic of a Pentagon information system were made interoperable, you can see Scalia exult in writing about it. Then he served a couple of years as the chairman of something called the Administrative Conference of the United States as a kind of quasi-public think tank that helps federal agencies like the FDA, like FCC, like the Federal Election Commission, all the alphabet soup of federal agencies improve their practices. And then we come to the moment you described, Newt, where President Nixon, in the waning days of his term, nominates Antonin Scalia to serve. 
as Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel, the same position that Bill Rehnquist had held when Nixon nominated him to the Supreme Court. Nixon is forced by Watergate to resign. Gerald Ford takes office, the country's only unelected president, and who had never been elected president or vice president. And the official paperwork that is associated with a federal nomination like this for a Senate-confirmed position like Assistant Attorney General states that the president has appointed and does hereby nominate the individual who's being promoted. And of course, Ford had not appointed him. He did nominate him. So Scalia, as justice in later years, liked to boast that his commission papers from this period of the summer of 1974 were something of a collector's item because the language on his commission, his official commission entrusting him with federal office, was tailored specifically for him to meet this unusual situation of his having been appointed by Nixon, but nominated by Ford. There are new documents on this in Scalia Rise to Greatness that have never been published before that show the kind of work he was doing as Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel in the post-Watergate era. And it had two central thrusts to it. And again, it's never been studied in this detail with so much revelation from CIA archives and other sources. On the one hand, Scalia joined forces with other conscientious conservatives of the era, such as Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld, to preserve the powers of the presidency against what they considered in this post-Watergate era to be an onslaught from Democrats in Congress and from the news media to curtail the powers of the presidency. And while this cadre of conscientious conservatives, which also included most notably Larry Silberman, held no affinity for the lost cause of Richard Nixon, they knew that even after the Watergate and its subsidiary scandals faded from the headlines, the country would need a strong executive. And so Scalia was instrumental in preserving those powers. The other end of it is that he participated in what was, after Watergate and its attendant revelations, the complete reformation of the intelligence community in the United States. The real first attempt at setting down rules of the road for the intelligence community after all the revelations of Watergate and the Kennedy administration's efforts to assassinate Fidel Castro using the intelligence community and the mafia and so on. And Scalia helped write those rules of the road. He also worked on a lot of classified matters which remain classified. But as an example of the kind of influence he had, it got to the point where the Ford administration was running just about every covert operation past Antonin Scalia for his legal approval. <laughs> and it was a position that the kid from Queens never imagined that he would occupy, standing astride the American intelligence apparatus. And as one example of it, and it's not been published before, on the afternoon of April 30, 1975, Scalia received a call from the White House basically telling him that they needed his legal opinion within a few hours' time as to whether it would be lawful under the War Powers Act for American helicopters to evacuate embassy personnel from the roof of the American embassy on the day that Saigon fell, April 30, 1975. He provided the legal opinion that found that it was lawful for U.S. helicopters to do that, and they did. But he later said, again, in a previously unpublished account, I thought to myself, would they really not conduct the operation because of the word of legal counsel? What is the world coming to? So his work in the Ford administration is really fascinating and covered, again, here in greater detail than ever before, including a previously unpublished photograph of him meeting with President Ford in 1976. He also had an extraordinarily important ruling on whether or not presidential papers belonged to the president. That's right. His first assignment at the Department of Justice was to pronounce on who owned the Nixon tapes. And I interviewed the young lawyer who worked alongside Antonin Scalia back at that time in 1974, now a law professor named Bill Funk, 
who remembered staying up with Scalia pulling all-nighters in the White House Situation Room to review documents ahead of their testimony before the Pike Committee, and who was present for Scalia's immersion in so much of this classified material, and remembered Scalia vividly saying, why am I being invested with this knowledge of the name of a covert asset in some foreign country? This is crazy. One of the lessons Scalia took away from his service in that time period, as he later joked as justice, was that the army that hits the beaches with their lawyers in tow is asking for trouble. And he was inclined after 9-11 to draw a direct line between the attempted emasculation of the intelligence community in the post-Watergate era and the attacks of September 11. So in a sense, Scalia, much like George Washington, believed that a strong executive was essential in a dangerous world. An inviolable element of the separation of powers. So in that context, the critics of Scalia really try to create a story that there was a combination of doing what powerful people wanted him to do and authoritarianism growing out of his Catholic upbringing, which strikes me as part of the classic left's hostility to Catholicism and their belief that strong executives are inherently dangerous, unless, of course, it's their strong executive. I suppose we're obligated to note that there is a Catholic left and always has been, at one point exemplified perhaps by the Berrigan brothers. But you're correct that Scalia's career and his motivations were subject, certainly in the previous biographies, but even at points in real time along the way, to a kind of cynical view, a tendentious construction that is utterly rejected in this present volume, Scalia Rise to Greatness. I call it the careerist authoritarian narrative, where no matter what opinion he delivered, his biographers and other critics have always said that he was, in essence, advertising his eagerness for promotion with various powerful people, which suggests a kind of cynical abandonment of any particular set of ideals he held in order just to gain more power. And at the same time, these same critics have suggested that his various rulings and opinions that he offered actually reflected some deep and dark authoritarian impulses in Scalia, perhaps the result of his Catholicism, his rules-oriented father, and so forth. And of course, both can't be true at the same time. He can't be nakedly flashing his authoritarianism at the same time that he's cynically tailoring his views to suit powerful men. And I spoke with people who work closely with Scalia at all points of his career, and they all used a barnyard epithet for that whole careerist authoritarian narrative. He was actually quite courageous in the opinions he delivered, including the one that President Nixon, former President Nixon, owned the Nixon tapes. As Jim Wilderotter, an attorney who worked alongside Scalia at DOJ and the Ford White House, told me they knew in coming to the conclusion that Nixon owned his own tapes, that would be a very unpopular opinion with and finding with the members of the Congress and the news media and so on. But he issued it anyway because it was justified on the basis of past practice and the law. And Scalia considered it a vindication of sorts when many years later in 2000, after former President Nixon had died and the legal suits were resolved between his estate and the National Archives, the U.S. government agreed to pay the Nixon estate $18 million in compensation for the seizure of the tapes, which were his personal property. So Scalia was ultimately vindicated in that. But time and again, he was a profile in courage. As he famously put it when he was testifying in 1973 on behalf of executive privilege, he understood that coming to the halls of Congress to preach the benefits of executive privilege at that time in the Watergate era was akin to preaching the benefits of water after the Johnstown flood. But he understood what the country needed and what separation of powers required. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. At the end of the Ford administration, Scalia leaves government, and he decides to go and teach. Why did he decide that he would teach rather than go to a law firm? And two, when he did decide to teach, why does he go to the University of Chicago, which of course is an amazing and great institution, but I think the Scalia decision is unique and kind of remarkable. So again, in Scalia Rise to Greatness, we present in greater detail than any previous biography of the man, his two stints in academia. First at the University of Virginia Law School, from 1967 to 1970, and then at the University of Chicago Law School from 1977 to 1982, when President Reagan nominates him to the Court of Appeals as a federal bench. These episodes have been treated only cursorily in the previous literature. I tracked down former students of Scalia's and colleagues of his from both academic institutions. And UVA in Charlottesville in the late 60s was hardly immune from the campus radicalism that swept through the United States in that time. There was violence, there was clashes with student protesters and so forth that Scalia was there for. And in fact, one student recalled for me a previously unpublished account of what Professor Scalia told his students the day they had to take an exam the morning after the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, which was you know fascinating insight into Scalia at that time. His students told me that Scalia used to, when teaching contracts class at UVA in the early 70s, literally run from one end of the stage to the other to act out the part of the disputing parties over a contract dispute, drawing on his theater experience that he had as a young man at Xavier High School. And by all accounts, he was always rated highly by the students as one of their favorites. The years at UVA turned out to be more enjoyable for the Scalia's than did his later stint 
at the University of Chicago Law School simply because living, I think, in northern Virginia or in near Charlottesville, I should say, was more pleasant for the Scalia family than Chicago turned out to be. But the reason he chose University of Chicago Law School to get to your question was because that has always been considered not just one of the premier academic institutions in the United States, but a kind of conservative bastion within academia. And he wrote and lectured widely during that stint at University of Chicago, appeared on television a lot. And it was during those times when he was appearing also as a scholar for AEI, appearing on debate programs with other eminent minds at the time, where he made his first comments on abortion as a subject, and where he wrote a law review paper that was truly remarkable for its time called The Disease as Cure, in which he used Swiftian satire, unheard of in law review writing, to attack affirmative action and declare it as reverse racism in effect. So he made his mark in those academic institutions. And again, this is presented in greater detail than ever before in Scalia Rise to Greatness. Scalia goes through a little bit of frustration at the beginning of the Reagan administration. He really wanted the job of Solicitor General of the United States, which is the lawyer who works for the federal government and represents the U.S. government in disputes at the Supreme Court and often argues those cases at the Supreme Court for the government. This was the job that Robert Bork had held under the Nixon administration. It's often been seen as a stepping stone to the Supreme Court. Scalia turned out to be one of three candidates for the job, one of whom was Bork, but ultimately the Reagan administration chose Rex Lee, the father of the current Utah Senator Mike Lee. And this was a bitter disappointment for Scalia. And I think for him, it conjured those memories of being rejected at Princeton because the attorney general who made the decision, President Reagan's first attorney general, William French Smith, was himself a patrician, cool, Ivy League type of character. As it happened, the declassified documents obtained from the Reagan library show that Scalia should never have worried because from the earliest moments right after Reagan's election in 1980, powerful individuals and groups, including Italian-American groups, were lobbying on his behalf to receive some kind of important appointment in the executive or judicial branches. And the record shows the White House counsel at the time, Fred Fielding, telling these individuals and organizations were trying, in essence, to find the right spot for him. But in the meantime, not only did he not get the SG job, he was passed over for the first vacancy on the court he wanted, the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. That went to Robert Bork. And then the first Supreme Court vacancy under President Reagan to fulfill his campaign pledge went to a woman, Sandra Day O'Connor. By this point, Scalia had been on shortlists for the Supreme Court for a number of years. And so, as I mentioned, this is where we quote Tom Petty in the book, The Waiting is the Hardest Part. He was then offered a seat on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals based in the Midwest. And he ultimately decided to turn that down, which was a gamble of sorts, because being appointed to the Court of Appeals, whatever the circuit is, is the capstone to many legal careers. And there would be no guarantee that he would see a vacancy anytime soon on the court he wanted, the D.C. Circuit. But Scalia was a veteran poker player. He gambled. And he ultimately prevailed because just a few months later, a vacancy arose on the D.C. Circuit and President Reagan placed him on that court. He gets to be on the court and then he gets nominated for the Supreme Court. So this is all covered in the book. The book ends with Scalia literally taking his seat on the Supreme Court the day he's sworn in. But those four years on the appellate court established his legal philosophy in writing, in his dissents, in his opinions. But they also served to introduce him to the person who would become his best friend for the rest of his life, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was on that court for two years, appointed by President Carter when Nino Scalia joined her on the Court of Appeals in 1982. 
Scalia Rise to Greatness is the first book to publish the documents that flew between their chambers on that court from 1982 to 1986 using Ruth Bader Ginsburg's papers from the Library of Congress. And the handwritten notes and the memos and the letters and the correspondence and the draft opinions that flew back and forth between the Scalia and Ginsburg chambers in those years really chronicle the birth and the blossoming of this famous celebrated friendship. What do you think brought them together so much? Well, it's a great question. And too often overlooked in examining this, it seems to me, is the fact that it began at work. Their relationship was born of work. And they both took their work very seriously. And that's reflected in this previously unpublished correspondence. From the earliest, you can see Ruth Bader Ginsburg taking an almost maternal tone towards Scalia, offering to lighten his burdens if his workload is too much. In these memos where they're debating fine points of the law with the minds of legal geniuses and the wit that we all know they both exhibited, you see her alternately challenging Scalia, needling Scalia, flattering him, cajoling him, pressuring him, provoking him on the First Amendment and other issues. And for his part, you see Scalia in these documents, I call them the RBG Nino papers, responding with superlative praise for her opinions that was probably unknown even to Scalia's brightest students and clerks, possibly to his children. You see him letting his hair down, admitting error at different times, and one time apologizing to her for producing an opinion late, quote, sloth that I am. They really capture a friendship in embryo. And I dare say, not only was their correspondence on that court, unlike the correspondence of any other two judges on that court, having examined all those papers, her papers, Bork's papers, others, but it was probably unlike the correspondence of any two judges on any court at any time. It's one of the things I'm proudest of in terms of research, and there's a lot of new material in this book. But looking at the RBG-Nino relationship and its origins is one of the things I think readers will find most rewarding in Scalia Rise to Greatness. Now, the other thing you cover, which is frankly almost unbelievable, is John Bolton, who at that time was in the Office of Legislative Affairs, tracking Scalia down when Scalia is finally approved. Given how controversial Scalia became later, the fact that he's approved 98 to 0 is kind of amazing, isn't it? It speaks to a time that is certainly bygone. He was not the last Supreme Court justice approved unanimously, but a new era was dawning, and that was visible from the fact that his nomination was paired with the nomination of Associate Justice William Rehnquist to become the Chief Justice due to the retirement of the outgoing Chief Justice Warren Burger. And Rehnquist's original confirmation hearings to be an Associate Justice back in 1971 had been very contentious. And then in 86, when he's nominated to be Chief, they called it the Renquisition because the opposition from Senate Democrats was so fierce and so personal. And ultimately, Rehnquist was approved 65 to 33, which in 1986 was the largest opposition tally ever sustained by a confirmed nominee for the court. Now it's routine to see 52, 48 and that sort of vote. But in the light of the Renquisition, and given Scalia's status as the first Italian-American ever appointed to the court, something that touched off a true explosion of joy in the Italian-American community, which we explore in this book, most senators, all the senators, took the view that he was well-qualified, the ABA had rated him well-qualified, and that they wanted to be seen as bipartisan, something that isn't present in today's Congress. And so Scalia was approved 98 to nothing. On the night of the vote, what the White House and the Justice Department want for such a nominee to be doing is twiddling his thumbs in some hotel room or some ceremonial office waiting for the call. Scalia blew that off. <laughs> Scalia was a social animal. He was given on a whim 
to commandeer a piano in someone's house and start belting out show tunes and Christmas carols for the assembled with shameless but endearing grandeur. And on this particular night of his Senate vote, he was out on the rubber chicken circuit in a black tie dinner and had to be tracked down at the Willard, for which 37-year-old John Bolton, who still had his mustache at that time, I should point out, devised the ingenious plan of dedicating a phone line at the Willard Hotel where this event was in the kitchen and corralling an employee who would bring Scalia to the phone at the appointed hour. That's exactly what happened. And this has never been reported before. Bolton told me that when he finally got Scalia on the phone at the Willard Hotel kitchen phone, he said, Nino, congratulations. They knew each other. They had been at AEI together. John Bolton had attended Scalia's so-called murder board sessions as a nominee, where you have a kind of a mock hearing and they throw nasty questions at you. And he says, Nino, congratulations. You've been confirmed 98 to nothing. Isn't that incredible? And Bolton is caught up in the reverie before he realizes that the other end of the line has fallen silent. And Scalia finally can be heard saying, 98 to nothing. Who didn't vote? And Bolton says, oh, it was Barry Goldwater and Jake Garn. But, you know, isn't this incredible? 98 to nothing. And again, there's silence. And Scalia finally says, with a hint of rebuke in his voice, you mean to tell me we couldn't get Goldwater and Garn? Which, by all rights, should have been reliable votes for his nomination. And at this point, as Bolton told me, he was growing a bit irritated, particularly after the rigors of the Renquisition. And he said to him, look, Barry Goldwater we couldn't find. And it later turned out that Goldwater had gone home sick when the vote was delayed into the evening. And Jake Garn, the senator from Utah, was in the hospital at that moment, donating his kidney to his daughter. <laughs> so he said to him, concentrate, Nino. You've just been confirmed 98 to nothing. And I begin the whole book with this anecdote because it's so reflective of Scalia's commitment to perfection in all things, which he largely achieved as an adult and as a public servant. And he finally said, you're right, that's great. But the fact is, it bothered him into the 21st century. And as late as 2005 on C-SPAN, you can find Justice Scalia saying, it was 98 to nothing. Let's call it 100. I was very intrigued with your comments about the Federalist Papers, because I just did a podcast talking about the importance of the Federalist Papers and the lessons they still have for us today. From your perspective, you see Scalia as having very deep reverence for the Federalist Papers. Absolutely. And one of the minor revelations of the book is when that really originated for him. It wasn't in law school. It was when he was serving under President Ford in the post-Watergate era. That's when he really had to become familiar with it. Scalia would teach law courses to lawyers and students every year, sometimes twice and three times a year, as a justice. In the summertime, when the justices are off for the season, he could usually be found in some beautiful and far-flung locale teaching continuing legal education courses and so on. And he would invariably ask those who were his students in attendance, raise your hand if you've read the Federalist Papers. And a large number of hands would go up. And he said, no, no, no. I don't mean just the famous ones, like 76 or whatever. How many of you have read the Federalist Papers in their entirety? And the hands would drop, and maybe one or two people would raise their hands at that point. And this always dismayed him because he felt you could not truly understand the separation of powers and therefore the way the law should be applied if you weren't conversant with the Federalist Papers. I happen to agree with him on that. James, I want to thank you for joining me. It's frankly remarkable that given your job as the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, you were able to invest yourself and dive in and pull together section after section, which had never before been published, 
and gives a dramatically clearer vision of Scalia on his way to the Supreme Court. And I look forward very much to your next book about Scalia as a Supreme Court justice, because he is, I think, probably the most consequential Supreme Court justice of our lifetime and fundamentally shifting the way in which the court has interpreted the Constitution. Your new book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, is going to reward readers, lawyers, and non-lawyers as a book both for Scalia's admirers, but for all Americans who want to understand history and how the law has been evolving. And I think they will truly enjoy it. And it's remarkable the amount of work you've done. So I want to thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Mr. Speaker, once again, we can revert to the honorific. It's been a real honor to have this opportunity with you. And I'm honored further that you have read the book. And I still want to hear your Scalia stories for volume two. Thank you to my guest, James Rosen. You can get a link to buy his new book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today 
at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.